Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for joining us today for an event uh, to mark the launch of a document, Bath Beyond 2020, which I hope will have real impact in the city of Bath in the years to come. I'm most grateful to you for giving up your valuable time to being with us. I'd also like to pay great tribute to those in our Institute for Policy Research and the Good Economy Partnership for engaging with so many in our community and producing such a thoughtful report with very clear recommendations. In addition to Professor Pierce, I pay real tribute to James Cupstick, Charles Larkin and Catherine Owen, along with Mark Hepworth and Sam Waples, for what has clearly been a most successful study. As I've stated in the foreword to the report, recognising that many students and staff from the university have for many years contributed directly to the local community, it is right that the university plays its role. In the past year, initiatives such as our shared future, led by Tim Kaner and Burley Morley, have laid the foundation for additional activities. COVID has, of course, accelerated this engagement with activities such as the direct production of more than 200,000 PPE items for local healthcare workers, having real impact in the city in a way that would have not been imagined this time last year. The pandemic, however, has created great challenges for the city going forward, not only in terms of health, educational and wider social factors, but also for the economy. And I'm therefore very grateful to my colleagues in the IPR and their partners at The Good Economy for their work in producing this report, which charts potential routes ahead. I also recognize it'll be important for the university to respond thoughtfully to the recommendations within the report, recognizing the duty we have as an institution. Looking ahead to a future beyond the pandemic and indeed Brexit, a time when Bath must remain resilient in the face of the challenges ahead. I'm convinced of the immensely positive contribution our university can make. We can act as a partner and catalyst for positive change through our research and innovation and through our talented staff, students and graduates, so many of whom develop a lasting affection for and affiliation with the city we share. I do hope, therefore, that we are able to find new ways of doing this in partnership with others. And as a result, I'm very pleased to commend this report. I'd like now to invite Professor James Copstead to make comments. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor, and uh, greetings everybody. And thank you for joining us for this uh, launch event. We have a lineup of uh, four speakers after me who are going to say a few words. Uh, they've been given 10 minutes each, and then we hope that will leave us a good 20 minutes uh, to handle the questions that uh, uh, you pose us uh, and make observations in the Q&A uh, function. So in the summer, uh, those of us who've been involved in this report were like, I'm sure all of you, uh, reeling at the news and trying to work out um, what the implications of COVID were and what uh, the future um, might be, look like beyond COVID. Uh, 
And we took the opportunity of some money being available to recruit a graduate on a summer internship. Uh, that's Katrine Owen. Uh, and she joined us um, uh, making some uh, visits and also by Zoom from, from Cardiff to interview a slightly opportunistic range of organizations, uh, mostly in the business sector, large and small uh, around Bath, just to ask this question, uh, what were the trends before COVID struck? How is COVID changing things? What does that mean for beyond 2020? And what role does the university have uh, in that scenario? Uh, I might say that this was an unusual experience for me. My official title at the university is Professor of International Development. So this was one of the very first times that I've actually been involved in some research in my own uh, locality. Uh, so in a way, I'm kind of the least expert among the, the team who did this research. And sometimes I felt my role was uh, simply to be the person who's lived in Bath for 30 years, uh, given that my co-authors, uh, Charlie Larkin, uh, who's the director of research at the Institute of Policy Research, was expressing views about Bath across the water from Dublin. Katrina, as I've already said, was coming in to do the interviewing from Cardiff. And Mark um, was full of wry comments coming from um, uh, a slightly more London-centric, I would say. Um, and um, so uh, in the interest of objectivity, I'm only sorry we didn't manage to um, involve people on the team from uh, Brussels, uh, Belfast, and Edinburgh. Uh, just to, uh, to complete the picture. So there is a degree of detachment about this report, uh, but it is a report that um, being closer to home uh, was really genuinely motivated by wanting to influence this excitingly unfolding conversation about what the role of the University of Bath might be uh, beyond what it does already uh, in supporting the local economy. And uh, I think we've got a really interesting group of people here to, um, to kick off um, uh, a discussion of that issue. And um, so let me start with Mark Hepworth. Um, Mark is um, a multidisciplinary economist, an entrepreneur who started several businesses um, and has an international career spanning academia, public policy, business consultancy. He leads the Good Economies Research and Policy Work on inclusive and sustainable development. Do check out their website, it's very interesting. It's really fitting that we did this report with a local company based in the center of Bath. And um, I think it's also very uh, important to note that we did this with a local economy in Bath, which had taken the trouble to reach out to the university, employed quite a number of interns and placement students over the last three years, uh, at least one of whom is now a member of staff. And so Mark is kind of walking the walk in terms of uh, seeking active and practical ways to bring um, institutions together um, and brings a very interesting perspective in terms of the role of the private sector and also the financial sector in promoting place-based um, economic development. <clears throat> Charlie, I've already mentioned as the Director of um, Research at IPR, uh, is also an Assistant Professor at Trinity College Dublin uh, and at John Hopkins University and the Institute of Public Administration in Dublin, um, previously a special advisor to the chairman of um, the Committee on Health um, for, for Ireland, um, Dr. Harty. Um, and he's also been um, 
an advisor to Senator Sean uh, Barrett in the Irish uh, Senate. Uh, and um, so we're gonna give them a chance to say uh, something for 10 minutes each about the report, um, which is now um, available and open to the public. Um, and then we're really delighted to have two discussants. Firstly, Alison Ryan, who is chair of the Royal United Hospital in Bath, uh, who's been a non-executive uh, director um, since 1997, working on the boards of the Somerset Partnership for the NHS Mental Health Trust, NHS Southwest, NHS South of England, uh, both strategic health authorities, and the University um, Hospital uh, Bristol, uh, uh, their board too. Uh, she's got previous experience in the voluntary sector, the CEO of a number of organizations in the health and social care sector, including the Princess Royal Trust for Carers, now the Carers Trust, and the, the Weldmar Hospice Care Trust. And then fourthly, uh, we're delighted um, that David uh, Trithoe is joining us from Baines, where he's Director of Partnerships and Corporate Services, uh, responsible for the Council's corporate strategy. And he's leading, um, he leads the Council um, work on renewal in response to COVID-19, and has worked on a number of national and regional um, economic strategies and plans. Uh, as well as with uh, local uh, communities and businesses. So um, that makes a, a, an exciting lineup and I'm gonna pass straight on to Mark. Thank you, James. Um, good afternoon, everybody. I just wish I could see you, see all of you out there. I wish I could um, kind of physically interact with you because I just feel that, uh, I don't know how many Zoom calls I've been doing, but I, I really do enjoy talking to people at first hand. And uh, I do think that it, one of the interesting things about the lockdown is how we're trying to get used to something quite different living in this virtual reality rather than a physical one. So despite of that, I'm really pleased to be here and I'd like to thank the IPR and the university for staging the event and supporting the study all the way through um, it was a pleasure working with James and Charlie and, and Kathleen, and I'm, I really do feel we owe a big debt of thanks to all of the people who we interviewed, all the stakeholders who gave up their time and, uh, and were very patient with us as we went along. So thank you, everybody, and thank you for tuning in. Uh, the Good Economy is a social advisor and impact analyst to investors. So what we spend our time doing, going back and forth to the city in London, but increasingly, obviously, virtually, is trying to get investors who increasingly are showing an interest in making a social and environmental impact and helping us to build back better, although they don't call it that just yet. As we work with investors across private and public markets and across different asset classes, so some of our investors are interested, for example, private investors who are interested in contributing towards developing social housing across the country. So our, that, those are our main clients. I should say by now, we've been going for six years and we are a high growth company. We employ about 12 people by now. And ironically, perhaps we have been Zooming through this lockdown in more, more in two ways. Firstly, 
our offices are completely empty. We are operating as a virtual company. We don't see each other except like this. Um, and secondly, we've been flourishing as a business. And I think what that tells me, particularly when I compare that against my experience as somebody who goes into the town centre, goes down to the pub, does my shopping and gets to meet people, is that we're beginning to see or discern a dual experience going on between the knowledge economy, which we have been building in which the universities have been primary flagships of, and a consumer service economy, a service economy which relies on physical contact. And the difference between these two economies and the tensions between these two economies in many ways is what we've been looking at. How do we reconcile these two things? Um, in terms of the report, I think everybody felt that, you know, this is a year like no any other. It's a watershed moment. It's a historic moment, not just because of the pandemic, but mostly because of, but also because we've got Brexit looming and we've reached a period now, you know, where we've never really been before. So that was the first thing. Everybody was, was looking, at, looking at each other and saying, well, you know, where are we going from here? Much like the rest of the country. In beginning to question and reflect on reality and what's around us, we, we talked about uh, the kinds of issues that came up was, was Bath's economy sufficiently diversified? Was it too unbalanced? Did it rely too heavily on tourism and consumer services and not enough about a range of productive economic sectors which would deliver a wider range of opportunities for people and businesses? So the question of balance in the economy and diversification. Secondly, I think what came through quite strongly was, was Bath's image sufficiently modern and was it fit for purpose for the current day? Or was it basically stranded historically and without actually, and as a result of that, actually we weren't able to attract the kind of investment that would help to diversify the economy. And linked to that, there was issues about Bath's image and marketing. You know, were we marketing the, 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 the city correctly? The third issue that came up, I thought, was inequality. Uh, that we have been struggling to, to really deliver on inclusive growth. And there were communities in Bath that were struggling. I, incidentally, am the author of something called the Fox Hill Report which was about the Foxhill council estate in Bath and how systematically the council had neglected it over a 10, 15 year period to the point where Foxhill was being demolished. So I became quite famous for this Foxhill report, but the people in Foxhill assumed I was dead. So when the issue came up in council chamber about um, the demolition plans the housing association had for Foxhill, the residents started looking for me and said, look, you defended Foxhill first time round, but they thought I was dead because I have a professor in the same name who died at that very moment. And so I wasn't called upon because they thought I was dead, but I am very much alive, everybody. Um, in terms of what next, that was the second issue around that people we talked about. What next? The first thing was, was that Bath's world heritage status, Bath's physical realities, its beauty, natural and urban and built beauty, is not going to be knocked over by COVID. 
which is so important, which is that quite simply, we, there's something to work with. In a lot of parts of the country, we do not have this historical legacy and foundation to build on. But that is a fundamental point, that that actually anchors Bath. The issue then became, what will that economy of the future look like? So a lot of people talked about creative industries, the fact we were overlooking the fact there were lots of other kinds of sectors here that were highly productive. And one thing that became quite clear, certainly if you're thinking in terms of long range economic development, which is what we should be doing, rather than thinking about V recoveries, W shaped recoveries, J shaped recoveries and the like. If you think long term, the sectors that are really gonna matter are sectors that are producing innovations in the area of healthcare and climate change. If we get those sectors going in Bath, it takes us back to Aquaecilis, which was the Roman name for Bath. And Aquaecilis, the original Roman economy was based upon those very things. So I think instead of turning the mineral hospital or the hospital downtown into a casino or a hotel or whatever it is, let's go back to restoring Bath and creating this very long wave of economic development, which everybody plays a role, healthcare and climate change innovations. In relation to that, the other, other thing, the other issue that popped up was how do we, Bath is actually blessed with a lot of great institutions. Lots of people talked about hospitals, universities, and so on. We're really, really blessed. It's incredible endowment, but we've got to get the anchor institutions to punch their weight including the universities, not university, universities and Bath College and the housing associations and the big companies. We've got to get the elephants to dance. We have got to get those institutions to start punching their weight. We cannot blame this on the council, right? It's too, it's like balancing an elephant on the head of a pin. If you, if you think that it's the council that's going to deliver the future we're talking about. Finally, we talked about recommendations and there were three issues that I thought popped up. And I admit, James, I'm actually kind of giving this quite a bit of spin on a personal level here uh, as to my favorite things to talk about. I think the first one is geography. We've talked about Bath as if it was a walled city. We haven't really looked, I think, but I think we need to look further than this walled city, this Bath itself, to look to the surrounding area, which is Bath and Northeast Somerset District. So we need to look at all of these surrounding communities as one, instead of just looking at the city of Bath. So I thought that was an issue that popped up. We kept on talking about it, but we don't want to be a walled city, do we? Not in a global era. Secondly, I thought the issue of governance, it is not the job of the council to deliver this. The council cannot deliver this. So the issue of governance has come up. Governance means, in my view, creating a completely new agency, totally responsible for Bath. I understand we've got to cooperate at the regional level with Weka and now the Western Gateway, but we need a new agency supported by these anchor institutions to deliver an account and measure the impact of what's going on in Bath. So I'd like to see a whole new economic development agency. And as part of their job is they should be delivering the kind of investment, the level of investment that's needed to deliver all of our ambitions and aspirations. 
such as social housing, such as retrofitting, such as building infrastructure for climate change and so on. So I realize I've gone a little bit off the report, James, but I think that more or less resonates with most of what's said. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, you got off the report, <clears throat> but very much in the spirit of the conversations we had over the summer, uh, where it was an opportunity for people to, to think a little bit differently and step away from uh, the routine they'd been in before and to do so um, aware that this was a, you know, it was a process um, which needed some fresh thinking and fresh impetus. So, um, so I think that's entirely consistent with the spirit of the report, even if uh, not all those recommendations actually appear in black and white. Um, over to you, Charlie. Oh, thank you, James. Um, so I'm going to discuss the university side of, uh, of the report, um, and, and Mark did a fine job of explaining some of the main issues that that appeared and this split between the the knowledge economy and the, the 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 physical services economy the tourism and hospitality sectors which have a very large role in, in in bath and one of the things that was very clear in our interviews and our background research was that many of the the overarching issues about inclusive growth uh, for the for bath and baines are also issues which appear as part of the conversation about the university itself uh, and this relates to uh, issues relating to transport, to accommodation, um, to employment, and the attractiveness of, of, of Bath as a location for individuals to have their careers and families and, uh, and, and to reside. Um, and, and this is something which uh, came across in our conversations because students are perceived by many people as transitory, uh, as um, potentially crowding out um, accommodation, as um, placing uh, exceptional stress on transportation systems and things of that nature. But in fact, those were just manifestations of wider issues about uh, the overall stressors on the, the Bath regional economy. So those issues of accommodation, affordable accommodation, the issues of efficiency and affordability and transport, those were overarching issues and they were just thrown into higher relief due to the pressures brought about by the student population. That being said, uh, the presence of the university was seen as exceptionally important for many industries located in Bath, especially knowledge-based industries. Um, those industries um, have a, a, some of them are, are very recent, they're, they're young firms, uh, as, as young as, as Mark's firm or younger, or they're long established uh, firms uh, that have had uh, fruitful and long standing relationships with the universities, um, especially those that have worked uh, with respect to um, engineering uh, and architecture. Uh, those types of firms have had a relationship with the University of Bath since its foundation. We've also found the differing relationship between the, the local authority and the university, that the university was very much attracted to its current location by the local authority in the 1960s, uh, and that the relationship between the two entities have waxed and waned over time. Um, this is something in the COVID environment, uh, the, the Economic uh, Redevelopment uh, uh, Committee, which the Vice Chancellor sits on, has been rejuvenated. This relationship between the, the local authority and between the university and between the University of Bath and its counterparts, being Bath Spa University and Bath College. And really what 
became very clear in all the conversations that we had was the importance of the relationship between those three entities to be one of cooperation and to amplify their relative strengths between one another to improve the, the economic dynamism of the Bath economy. Um, and of course, as an economic entity, Bath has, uh, the University of Bath has, has a very large role. Not only does it have the students, about 9,000 students live in, uh, in, in the region, uh, they also have staff. Uh, about uh, the majority of staff live within the Baines uh, district. Um, and of course, the university has outward orientated activities such as the seminar, which try to bring the community into uh, in, into the university space. At the same time, the university system itself is beginning to change. Uh, um, Tim Kaner was mentioned earlier by the Vice Chancellor, but he is also involved in the Civic University Program, which is a program in which the universities uh, become uh, more intertwined with the activities of their local region. And this is in keeping with the wider uh, push of the university sector. So you have the uh, UNESCO, the United Nations education body, um, supporting the idea of universities engaged with their local communities. It's also part of the position of the, what they call the quadruple helix. In the past, policymakers at the London level would have highlighted the interaction between government, academia, and industry. Now there's an additional component to that, which is engagement with the community. And with that, the co-development of knowledge and the use of academic abilities to port the international, the global into the local environment to address local challenges and questions. And Mark quite rightly mentioned the, the, the origins of the, of the city um, and the importance in the 18th century as, as a spa town uh, and the role of health. And of course, healthcare is going to be one of the major growth industries and growth sectors. Um, it's an ability by which the localities comparative advantage can be bootstrapped with the knowledge created in the uh, post-secondary sector institutions that are located uh, in, in Bath City itself. In addition to that, it's important to note that the, um, the university um, has a role in, in knowledge co-development and employment uh, more generally in the region. Um, and you can see that in labor market activation policies that were discussed in the report, but also are being discussed as the general uh, recovery of, of the economy. It's very clear that uh, tourism and hospitality sectors are going to have a very difficult and long road to recovery. And there is going to be an active role for post-secondary institutions such as the University of Bath, working in concert with other institutions like Bath College to try to bring about um, new forms of employment for those individuals as structural adjustments take place. And the exceptionally large elephant in the room of Brexit means that there will be some structural adjustments that will have to take place in the UK economy as it adapts to its new role and position uh, in the trading system uh, of the uh, adjacent European Union. And the universities have a very interesting active role which can be played in that. Generally, this quadruple, quadruple helix model, as well as this idea of, of co-production, has been very successfully tried in other cities. In the United Kingdom, Manchester University is one of the leading uh, 
institutions in this light. Uh, in uh, the European Union, you can look to the University of Alto in Finland, which has also developed this, uh, this approach. Uh, and there are various uh, programs not only involving Europe, but across uh, the globe where the university sector has married the global to the local in such a way to improve uh, the position of the university, uh, improve its research profile, and also improve the employment and economic dynamism of the, the local city region. On a final note, and, and Mark's company uh, is heavily involved in profiling firms along this line, is the role of the sustainable development goals. Um, and James, uh, of course, from a development background, international development background is well versed in them. Uh, but this report really began when we sat down and we had a conversation about how do we talk about inclusive, inclusive sustainable growth in the era of a climate crisis. And SDG 11 is about sustainable cities. Uh, and we, we took a sustainable cities approach uh, to, to this report. And hopefully that comes through. Um, and there's a lot more work that can be done. And in fact, there's uh, an initiative started by James to coordinate the research capabilities of the University of Bath along the lines of the sustainable development goals. And there's great opportunities for collaboration uh, between different institutions using that, uh, that lens. Uh, the final thing I would say is that this report would not have been possible uh, without uh, Catherine Owen, who was our, our intern, uh, uh, working with myself and James and Mark over the summer. Um, she's a University of Bath uh, graduate in economics, uh, has been a wonderful person to work with and has been very committed to this program of work and, and she deserves praise for that, um, as well as uh, a tremendous amount of effort on the part of the Institute for Policy Research um, in the form of, of Amy Thompson and Sophie O'Brien, who, who have really uh, taken uh, the, the various palimpsests that we provided uh, as, as the initial output of this research and, and turned um, our, our, our rather clunky prose into poetry. Um, so with that, I hand things back over to, to James and I hope that we have a lively conversation subsequently. Thank you, Charlie. I notice we're already five minutes over, so I'm gonna pass straight on to Alison. Thank you very much, James. And thanks to the IPR and the university for involving uh, EIUH and myself in this study. And could I take the opportunity to thank uh, Professor White and everyone at uh, the university and both our universities, in fact, for their support during the early part of the COVID crisis, providing PPE for our staff at the Royal United Hospital. Um, I think the NHS has become uh, only relatively lately interested in its role as providing anchor institutions in communities. And in, in Mark's terms, I think we are an elephant in the dance. Uh, but we don't actually know what the steps are. But I have to say that if you're in my position where you get frequent instructions from the centre, one of the instructions upon us now is to act as an anchor institution. So in the, it's the first time in all my long time in, in the NHS that I've ever seen that instruction and responsibility. And when you think about it, it does make a lot of sense because in a, a city the size of Bath, um, the acute hospital is likely to be one of the biggest employers, one of the biggest um, owners of real estate, doing more engineering, possibly doing more applied research, having more environment to manage and being affected by the environment, uh, being a real user and sometimes supplier of housing, 
being a user and provider of further education and career development opportunities. Um, and also being really sort of part of the volunteering and social uh, and community mix in, in the community, simply because of its size. And in RUH, we serve half a million people. I have to say not all from Baines, uh, only about less than half, more like 30% from, uh, from Baines, the rest come from Wiltshire, Mendip and South Gloucestershire. Um, we have over 6,000 people are directly employed by us. And as we have a 52 acre site, and it's estimated, I think, that 15% of the traffic in normal times going through the centre of the bath during the daytime is coming to the hospital. So we kind of get in the way. We're big, and that gives us um, both, of course, power in our community and in our economy, but it also gives us responsibility. And I could look at all those things that I've just mentioned that we have, that we're big in, um, and they are opportunities for joint working with our colleagues in other institutions and the local authority. But if we only did that, we'd kind of be missing the point. Because I think where we are in healthcare now, uh, in our own plans nationally, and also within our system, where we work with our colleagues in Swindon, Wiltshire and Salisbury, um, we're starting from the concept that you make health at home and that hospitals are for repair. And that is very much where we're coming from. And if we only look at the repair functions, which we currently do in acute hospitals, we will only be able to do a tiny part of what constitutes people's health and their ability to be part of their community and part of the economy. And we need to look far more broadly than that. And one of the big things that has happened with COVID, it's brought a lot of this, which has been a bit nebulous in lots of our thinking. Uh, although I have to say Lord Crisp, Nigel Crisp, has been leading on this very effectively for some time. Um, it's, it's brought it into very sharp focus because what it taught us was that inequality, particularly racial inequality, drives very poor health outcomes. We knew that before, actually. The statistics were there before, but COVID has rubbed our nose in them to the extent that we all have brought those issues way up on our agendas. And we know that if we don't deal with those as an acute hospital by supporting the eradication of such extremes of inequality within our community, we will fall over. We will not be able to do our job. We've also learned that stress drives poor health outcomes. Again, we knew that um, both mental health and physical health. And I, I think Mark said that uh, we had different experiences of COVID, depending on what sector you're in. I would say we were all in the same storm, but we most certainly were not in the same boat. So even in a hospital, yeah. different departments obviously were either very stressed or actually, at least at the beginning, quite having quite a good time. Um, and it's the same in the economy. And we've realised that if you don't deal with those underlying causes of stress, then uh, you are going to have major poor health outcomes. We've also learned that environmental deprivation drives poor outcomes. And now we knew that before that, uh, you know, when the air pollution is bad in Bath, our A&E is full. If, if there's a heat wave because of climate change, our A&E is full. So we know we have to be responsible for making changes there. But what we've learned also is that access to green spaces, access to gardens and nature is really important in maintaining health. So we need to do something about that. 
We've learned that isolation drives poor health outcomes. And uh, that's been very, very clear because it impacts on both mental health and immunity. So we need to help the development of communities that work against isolation. And we've also learned that our staffing is very fragile. Uh, I have currently 180 staff who are not able to come to work for COVID related reasons. Um, that's really quite a big chunk out of our, our working um, requirements. We have in health a traditional, very structured, very traditional way of recruiting both nursing and medical staff. I, I suspect we need to be able to fish in different pools and recognise different abilities learnt differently if healthcare is going to be able to survive into the future. We simply are not going to be able to recruit people on the traditional patterns. So we need to be able to learn how to use different resources that human beings bring into the mix and our colleagues in education, but also our colleagues identifying those who may be doing voluntary work and have no idea that because they're not academically well qualified, they have exactly what we're looking for uh, could, could contribute. And that means as an acute hospital, but also as a health system, we need to measure our success in different terms. Now, right at the moment, you know, if I want to get RUH onto points west, which we actually do quite a lot, it's normally either there's a disaster, we don't know, we don't want that bit, but it's because we've got a new bit of kit that's well beating, and we do have a new bit of kit actually, we're very proud of it, and it's technology, it's a tiny bit of our work, it serves a tiny number of people, but it's very exciting, and that's how we've measured our success, traditionally. Are we doing the exciting things in an exciting way, and are we getting our names in the papers and doing the research? Actually, we need to re recalculate and re-stratify how we define our success in terms of how we contribute to the development of that positive social, educational, economic and environmental health in the population we serve. And that's a major cultural shift. Um, and I think the opportunity of COVID is it's opened enormous numbers of people's eyes within the health service to making exactly that shift. So I'm looking forward enormously to working with colleagues throughout the sector, throughout Bath, in order to making changes for the better. Thank you, Alison. And um, uh, I must say, uh, that was one of the interviews that I was part of was the interview with you. And, um, and it, was, uh, it was very heartening to hear a, a conversation that wasn't negative about the fact that the University of Bath doesn't have a school of medicine, but does have a department of health. And, um, and all the opportunities for more granular cooperation in the healthcare sector that Mark also alluded to. Uh, so I'm going to pass on now to David. Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you very much, James. And uh, um, so I'm David Trithy. I'm uh, Director of Partnerships of the Council. And uh, like James, I've also been in the uh, area now for something over 30 years. Um, and um, I'm currently leading, as we've said, uh, a lot of the work around the renewal. And I guess, um, like a lot of organisations, you know, the, the beginning of lockdown and the beginning of COVID had a major impact on what we're all doing, how we're all responding. And um, clearly it made a major shift, actually, not just in the, the work we do with the community, but also actually how we delivered it, you know, which um, certainly for the first couple of months, you know, was a, was a major organisational and local community kind of effort. But I suppose by the summer we got to the stage of having to think, well, this, you know, these lockdowns, lockdowns could go on, but actually 
what is it that we need to do um, in the future and how do we need to work? So we set up a renewal works stream and there were three elements to it, which I think are all um, relevant to today's discussion. One was very much around the kind of the logistics and the reopening. You know, we were in a position where, you know, the expectation was that the town centres would start to reopen, um, but that had, to be, that had to be done in a safe way. The second one really is around the whole community resilience issue. So I think a lot of the discussions here would be about the inequalities within the area, the, the, the differences and diversity within the area, um, but actually how do we support the most vulnerable in these kinds of situations? And how do we learn from the strengths in the different communities and the different issues in the communities um, about how we might work in the future? And I think we were very fortunate in Bath and Monthly Somerset to have a really uh, major partnership initiative um, with the Compassionate and now Community Wellbeing Hub set up very, very soon into the initiative, um, working with partners like Virgin, the voluntary sector, the council, which you know, I think made a major impact to, you know, this as being able to manage in that period. And I'm very pleased to say the IPR is now um, doing a study of lessons learned with us on that, which is great. And I think the third work stream we then set up was around thinking about what that renewal vision would be. And, clearly lots of parallels in the work that um, Mark and colleagues have done. And really thinking about, well, there are a lot of issues. COVID has brought some of those into focus, but also actually, what is it that we, where do we want to be in the future? So how do we, in the light as, you know, having declared a climate emergency, having declared ecological emergency, what difference does that then make to what our renewal vision should be? And how do we, how do we, um, how do we broker that discussion? How do we broker that transformation of how we think about things um, in a different way? Because I think, you know, um, there's lots of issues discussed in the, in the report and that you people here are going to talk about today. I, mean, I think we're aware of those, you know, and I think the relative economic success of the area in the past, you know, brought with it a number of frailties to the economy and the communities that we're aware of. So being very popular, being very economically vibrant has always meant we've had greater demand on housing. It's always meant um, we've had relatively low wage economies linked alongside some of those, you know, um, bigger businesses. And I guess the COVID, in COVID incident has brought that into profile. You know, some of those um, more, more fragile bits of the system and the economy were sometimes more greatly impacted by the changes and you know so when we're looking at our vision it's not just about thinking about all the things that are getting a profile in the, in the discussions nationally but it's about what's happening within our own communities so i think you know we welcome the um the reports i think you know one of the key things we've been clear on is we need to have some um basis for some of the uh, work we're doing in the future and some really good analysis in the report to help us with that. And I think one of the uh, things I found very positive in the report was the acknowledgement and sense of the word and the use of the word goodwill. You know, a sense that what you had experienced, what you'd found was a genuine commitment for people. And I think we found that through the COVID period, this has been a sense of actually we are facing this challenge together. So what does that, what, what possibilities does that, that bring in terms of, you know, kind of how we work in the future? And clearly that, um, you know, gives us the opportunities around a new vision. So I think we're, we're really pleased to be working with um, uh, partners like the university and, and other partners through the Economic Recovery Board 
and this um this report launch is very well timed as we're at the moment doing a, a an online um, sharing of some future vision stories um, which you can find on um hashtag one shared vision which kind of set out i think some of what some of the challenges we see it as part you know, with the council and our partners are and i'll just i'll just list them for you because i think they are um, relevant and the question which is um and what we've done is create through some discussion engagement with people some if you like stories that might describe how the future would look to provoke some discussion about you know what what we think is important here and what we think the opportunities are um i think if you can look those up and read them at your will they're not meant to be the future strategy they're meant to provoke that discussion i think the first one is that is called the heritage city of the future and it looks at how we future-proof tourism hospitality and retail jobs and connect these cities to our zero um, carbon 2030 ambition so we know we've got some economic sectors that are you know going to need, going to, need to change structurally they're going to need to change and how do we do that to you know complement our 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 vision for the future. It also tries to address that historical background that Mark mentioned earlier on around UNESCO. But what does what's the value of that to us as a place and to our communities? Second one is a sustainable regional test bed. So I guess one of the things that people say when they come to Bath and Office and I say is, well, actually you've got a lot of assets. And they don't always mean the buildings, they mean the institutions that you've mentioned in the report, they mean the people. They mean some of our communities, they mean some of the, you know, the informal groupings we have, there's some informal groupings. So how do we open up those assets to accelerate and scale, scale up um, the local impact of research and innovation? So what research and innovation could bring, could we bring to bear in our location, in our locality, that could help us, you know, emerge from this in a much better place? You know, it's, it's you know, we've got people here you know, you talked earlier about staff and universities, we've talked about students, we've talked about, you know, businesses, we've talked about institutions. So how do we, how do we use all those assets? And the third um, story is we're calling the 15 minute neighborhood. And I think it's, um, you know, talks about actually what our community is gonna be like. So it's not just assuming all, of my, all our behaviors are gonna continue as they did. You know, I think we all, we all know that, but actually, how do we start to articulate that and begin to work on it? How do we build community resilience? How do we reduce car journeys? You know, transport is a major cause, and um, as referred to it in terms of pollution, but it's also a cause of carbon emissions. How do we how do we cut those car journeys by promoting very local ways of living and working? So I think sometimes these are seen as kind of binary discussions between types of transport. It's not just about that. It's about actually how do we live and operate how do people um, access you know economic value how do they get jobs where do they go you know and all those things and how do we think about the way in which our communities and places are organized differently you know i think that links to some of the discussions about uh, in the report around anchors organizations hubs you know what what is it that people value and then the fourth one is around actually how do we make this all financially work so financing a fairer future so where is the money going to come from and what's the purpose of the money? So, you know, how do we, so if we want to green a fairer future and healthier future for the, for the, for the area, actually what's, you know, what's going to pay for that? You know, it's not going to come from, you know, the council's income, as we all know, is heavily, has been heavily 
um, you know, we're one of the most um, heavily dependent on income streamed councils in the country. And that was, you know, a very um, uh, legitimate approach based on, you know, um, how do we get the best outcomes for our communities with the assets we have? Well, some of those income streams are massively challenged in the future. You know, the retail offer is going to change. We have a lot of commercial properties. So how do we change that dynamic? And, there, and also what's the, and also how we get money, how does that influence the outcome and how people engage in the outcome? You know, so it's not about grants. How do people engage themselves in the, um, and we've seen some really good examples of community initiatives where because people have been involved in the financing, the outcome has been very different. And we're all familiar on that on a very small level from, um, you know, people taking over their local pub or hub um, through to people investing in community energy or into other social value kind of mechanisms. So that debate is live and I think we're really welcoming this report and I, um, I think it's a really positive contribution. Um, and I think the, con the emphasis the report on the contribution the universities can make is really strong and how do we, you know, flex that um, capacity and skill in research and innovation to help us in this. And as uh, um, um, the Vice-Chancellor um, talked at the beginning, you know, there's a commitment to that around the civic universities and how does that help us? And I think there's also a challenge in the report to us as all, all the anchor institutions in the area, how do we work together um, to deliver that collectively? But I think also that aspect of collaboration being really strong. So how do we bring our various skills and opportunities to bear? Uh, and Mark was clear, it can't all be done by the council. You know, we can do things, but we've got, you know, we've got restrictions as well. Um, but also we need to work both very locally within our different communities in the area, but we also need to influence regionally, sub-regionally and nationally. And I think some of the stories are about, well, actually, how do we position this area to the best advantage to help us meet our outcomes? And sometimes that will be me, you know, being a, a test bed for something is about potentially um, getting some uh, national recognition for something which can also then lead into other good outcomes for us. So just, uh, just some thoughts from me around the, where we are in position, but uh, you know, just to say thank you very much for the report and thank you to the IPR and uh, Good Economy for the work. Thank you very much, David. And uh, thank you. I've lost track of the questions. We've now got um, more than two dozen questions to try and deal with. I'm going to organise some of the questions under three broad headings. Firstly, um, diagnosis. The first question we asked was, you know, what's happening? What are the trends? Um, have we understood those? Secondly, there are a lot of questions about the institutions of, of collaboration and co-production. And then thirdly, there are questions about um, sort of deeper values. So um, three rounds of questions, and I'll open up the questions to our team with your fingers on the buzzers, metaphorically. Um, if two of you can answer each of the questions under the three headings, that will certainly fill up, I should think, the 25 minutes we've got. So firstly, just starting with some general questions about what's the broad trends in Bath that we picked up on. Annie Phil asks about um, remote working and local neutral, uh, location neutral working. Um, how can we ensure more fulfilling careers in this particular geographical area? Um, any more comments from the panel on this issue of um, uh, the, the, the polarization between those remote working 
and those um, uh, supporting the consumer sector and services and so on. Secondly, Deborah Steele um, emphasizes the importance of affordable housing and transport as key to moving things forward in Bath. Um, increasingly, people working in low paid jobs in Bath can't afford to live in Bath and have to live outside. Um, how do we see, um, how can we respond to this um, with a lack of public investment in both sectors? And Jeff Wood also talks about um, uh, the privatization of location and space, how we protect the, the commons, um, the 8% or less of land that is left not in private um, uh, ownership. Uh, and then fourthly, Ming Keng Tio says, does the panel feel we can be more, do more to capitalize on Bath's wellness and health historical links to encourage health-related service sectors, rehabilitation, anti-aging, aesthetics, medical tourism, medical devices, wellness, CROs to establish here? There are examples of clean industries consistent with our attractive environment, hospitality industry and aging. Uh, to go with the excellent universities and hospitals. So those are some uh, broad questions about the diagnosis. Does, does any of our panel want to pick up on any of those um, those four first, and then we'll go on to another group. Can I pick up on, on Ming's point, Ming Tio's point about health? I I kind of feel that that one of the problems we we we've got in this lockdown is is that we keep thinking of the we don't have a long-range view of the economy this building back better and leveling up and everything else we're talking about restructuring the economy david and renewing and all these different things and these these investment strategies are going to take years to deliver so we have to begin to start thinking more than one or two years ahead and start thinking 10 15 20 years ahead that's the way to do it and going back to Ming's point, I'm a firm believer, and all of the economics, the long wave economics tells me this, is that innovations in healthcare, innovations in climate change are the most important drivers of Bath's economic future. And that to me is so important because that brings in a role, a purpose, and a vision, not only for the anchor institutions, but the beauty of it, it is the first human-centered economic wave of development that the world has seen. And what better place to, to actually begin to emerge, whether it's a test bed or and innovation academies or having, I'd love to see the university put something in the middle of town. I'd like to see the university open up a health innovation center with small business coming in and out, young people going in and out. And my advice to Bath would be ride the sixth Kondratiev, ride the next wave of economic development, which is gonna be driven by healthcare and climate change innovation. Okay, um, anybody? Well, everybody's looking at the Kondratia oh, waves. Um, I might do one of the other three. I might jump in there now. Um, so there's a couple of different things that have come up in the questions and in the responses, which I think are important. Um, one is is that uh, there are projects at the moment, which um, to Deborah Steele has a question here, um, looking at Freiburg. 
Uh, and uh, there are programs underway uh, within the European Union that look at this question. And one of them is called the Towards a European Framework for Community Engagement in Higher Education, um, which provides a rubric and structure for how different anchor institutions and local uh, organizations can engage with higher education establishments to do knowledge production to engage in economic uh, development uh, that is mutually beneficial and to keep that engagement uh, between the locality and, and the, the, the wider world. Uh, and that's a program that's been advocated by the European Universities Association, um, which has position, put forward a position paper on post-COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important to note that despite the United Kingdom leaving Europe and formed the European Union, uh, the University of Bath will remain a member of the European Universities Association. So there, there is this fact that there, this collaboration, understanding and learning from different universities around Europe will continue to happen. Uh, and this is also something which happens in the United States. It's happening in Arizona. Uh, the Arizona State University is one of the major leaders in this space as well, uh, and somewhere to look at. In terms of Mark's vision of, of Krondatiev waves, uh, and I'm sure that everybody is trying to figure out how to spell that in Google, uh, but uh, Peter Tuchin, um, who is a mathematician who has applied long wave theory to history, um, he has a book called Secular Cycles, and there's an interview with him uh, in this month's Atlantic Monthly uh, with the cheerful title, The Next Decade Will Be Worse. Uh, but the basic principle is that you do, uh, yes, uh, th these uh, waves are actually um, can be taken advantage of. And the one that Mark is mentioning about healthcare, about uh, the role in medical devices, there's a great opportunity there. And the key thing to remember, and this is a lesson from the Irish economic development experience, is that in medical devices, tacit knowledge uh, is exceptionally important. So if Bath does develop a capacity in that space, uh, it will generate a virtuous cycle, uh, which will improve the development over time and draw more medical device firms uh, to the region and more venture capital investment. So there is an opportunity um, for the, the, the city region that can be addressed. Okay, um, Alison? I'm very conscious I'm surrounded by professional economists and it's 40 years since I read economics. But it does strike me that one of the difficulties we have in translating these good feelings into action is that we don't have a currency uh, in which we can describe in terms of the cost to future healthcare of not doing the social and uh, environmental and cultural development we, and economic development we've been talking about, which allows us then to make rational investment decisions because um, there's always an opportunity cost somewhere and <coughs> the opportunity costs are not articulated in a way that allows planners to make sense of them. And I think there is a lot of room for the economies to work with the healthcare centre to understand actually, if you don't do this, the actual cost to the economy yeah. is negative cost is going to be something. I've never seen that articulated and I've been looking for it for a long time. So that's a challenge to you guys. And Charlie and I'll go and do it with you. I mean, it's interesting what Charlie was saying about Freiburg. Charlie, you've read my mind because I was actually thinking about Freiburg earlier on. And it's interesting because it's got the same size of Bath. It's the same size type of city. It's 250,000 right. people. 
Thank you, Deborah. We're all going to go on holiday to Freiburg. That's great. Oh, um, can I answer? <laughs> um, uh, very quickly, Mark, because I want to get on to two more sets of questions. But... I don't. I don't mean to hog it, but but Deborah and I do communicate, and um, I can't agree more, Deborah. I don't know about the transport bit, but on affordable housing, um, I interviewed Victor de Kuna, and. Curo and housing associations are very much anchor institutions and they should be seen as that. We do an incredible amount of work here at The Good Economy with private investment and social housing. And to be perfectly honest, straight from the shoulder, it depresses me to see student housing going up and not key worker housing. And I'm going to say that right off the top as a resident of Bath, but also in my view, from the point of view of an inclusive city. It's what something Charlie sort of alluded to earlier. And it was interesting when we talked to the council how they tiptoed around the subject of student accommodation and its impact on key worker housing opportunities in Bath. I think it's a major issue. Uh, there's understanding the problem and then there's the, the institutions of, um, of, of co-production. Um, how do we forge new forms of collective action um, uh, without, um, as Stephen Taylor says, you know, we've been here before, um, but um, how do we get from the should to the action? Who, what is going to drive it and what plan, timescale, measurement and resources? And we've begun to discuss that a bit. I'd like to link that up with uh, Fionn Travers-Smith, who says what role for the banks and financial institutions in building a resilient and vibrant economy? How can banks be part of this, which maybe we haven't mentioned enough. Um, and um, uh, we've mentioned Freiburg. Um, Jeff Wood talks about lessons learned from abroad. Certainly as a professor of international development, I had never thought of Bath as having a natural resource curse problem where um, growth industries and activities were crowded out by the very wealth and success that we celebrate via rents and high transport costs, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and we have got some great examples of participatory development. Um, uh, we think back to Shore Start in Twerton, uh, and, and then somehow we have got an institutional problem. Um, we're not flat pack democracy in Mendit. We're not boxing cleverly enough in Wecker and the Western Gateway like North um, Bristol is. Uh, and that's something to do with um, how these different institutions can um, forge a common agenda together for the for the bit of the region which is in between um, Somerset, Wiltshire and Bristol. And um, so um, any thoughts on that and linking it also maybe to Ian Perkins's question about Britain being a very centralized system of government. How do we envisage keeping Whitehall and Westminster on side? Um, I would turn that around and say also, how do we become better at securing the fundings that do exist um, from central government as well as from the private sector through impact investing? Um, uh, in terms of the competitions that are open to us. So any, um, any comments from the panel on any of that? David? Yeah, so I, I think it's a, a very fair challenge in the sense of how do we translate, um, you know, emerging vision in, into action. I guess the difference this time, I think, is uh, as, as in the sense of the report um, identifies, I think, you know, the, the, the impact the COVID has changed the agenda quite significantly. I think it's also changed um, the extent to which people see that we need to work together. 
you know, I think part of Bath North Somerset's issue previously has been that relative success, you know, has meant sometimes we perhaps haven't had to address some of the potential conflicts in the same way that other places may have felt. And I did a secondment in the West Midlands a number of years ago for a few months. And, um, you know, it was quite easy to get consensus around issues in the sense that everyone could see, you know, um, alongside them a, a large industrial wasteland and they could see that for everybody there was a benefit to doing that work. In Bath North East Somerset, it's always been hard to see that there's a benefit to enough people for the consensus to be built for any initiative we take. And I think that's often a real challenge for us. I think the other challenge is also that short-term need to deliver against what um, Mark was talking about earlier, which is actually we need a long-term vision. So I think there's, you know, and there's a degree of having to balance off that need to say, actually, where do we want to be in the long-term, which is what we're trying to do with the vision, but actually how do we demonstrate, um, you know, in the meantime to people, to residents, to partners, to, um, to businesses that actually there's, there's value in what we're all doing. So it's a, it's a very fair challenge, I guess, what I say is that the stuff I referred to earlier is about the way in which that has been done, I think, um, is much more engaging and much deeper thinking than some of the stuff we've managed to do in the past. So hopefully we, you know, we've got a, we're on the road to do that. And, and obviously this help, this report will help as well. Okay, a quick comment from Mark, and then I'll do a last round of questions. I think the, the question about financing invest, the financial investment plans behind all of this is really important. Where does the money come from? <clears throat> this is what I do. This is what our company does for a living. And we are beginning to see a kind of rising tide, which has helped our business uh, uh, as, as a company. But, but there, there isn't a, there's a shift in investor sentiment, there's an, there's, which we've detected by working with the range of investors and banks and uh, private equity, invest, a whole range of people. This is a great time to start thinking about how do you, how do, you do this? How do you bring it in? And I do agree with that earlier comment. This is the most centralized country in Europe and this most, one of the most centralized OECD countries. But I think for me, the biggest challenge is the governance issue here. What agency do you need to drive this? You know, David and I go back a little bit. We met each other in the past. I have done this sort of thing all over the country. And this morning I spent one and a half hours with the guy at the city of Glasgow who's going to deliver Glasgow's city deal, which is the economic development plan for Glasgow. The problems across the country are the same. But what Bath has an opportunity to do is to say, what is it we want to achieve? And what's the investment that we need to make that happen? But before that, you need a question answered, which is, who is, you know, I hear about Bath Unlimited. There's this organization called Bath Unlimited, full of big companies and, and, and the university and so on. Maybe Bath Unlimited is this new development agency, right, that could create something of which the council is a part. But to me, until we solve the problem of who is going to actually do it, I think we'll always end up in a circular discussion even five years from now, more or less the same discussions. 
So for me, that does involve an investment plan. So I heard from Simon Martin at the council, who David would know the other day, that delivering a decarbonized bath is going to cost 300 million, right? Where's the development capital going to come from for that, for that infrastructure? That's the big deal. Where does the development capital come from? And that's why you need investors, banks, and, and, and a range of investment resources and actors in this equation. And until we get that, I think that we won't get what we're looking for. Okay, I'm conscious we're running out of time. I loosely organized the questions into um, three piles and the other the third pile being values. Um, Nigel Rawlinson talks about um, engaging young people um, in the city and in activities. William Heath talks about um, racial inequality and um, how we uh, deal with Bath's past and whether um, some more openness on that issue is part and parcel of this process of moving forward. Um, and Barbara talks about, uh, Barbara Carr, about um, uh, putting a wider set of values at the front of whatever initiatives we can come up with. Um, uh, in addition to shareholder values, which as Mark has pointed out, can also be broadened um, and are being broadened. So there's a set of uh, value issues there. Um, and, um, and maybe that will require a slightly more complicated architecture, um, a lead agency, but, but different agencies that are doing different things. So, you know, it's interesting that Bath Abbey through its redevelopment might be part of the anti-racism agenda, uh, as well as putting solar panels in the roof. And if Bath can't, you know, Bath can crack carbon decarbonization in old buildings, then it should have something to teach a few other places as well. So it's coalitions, coordinated coalitions, that, that uh, as one of our respondents very memorably said, he said, you can't work with the council, but you can't work without them. It's, so it's finding the right mix of council facilitation, but that, um, uh, and the, the politics that follows that, that not getting in the way of, of smaller coalitions acting around these areas, which is, I think, the way the university has been working in trying to identify a, a series of areas. Um, which will also then need to be coordinated. So um, uh, I'm not sure that went a bit beyond values, but I would like to give Alison a last word and maybe one other person in the last three minutes. And then I think, sadly, folks, we're out of time, but I hope this is the, um, the beginning of a conversation for some or a reinvigoration for others um, rather than being a one-off event. Thank you, James. And I read the questions and there was a direct question to me about uh, race or anti-racism. Um, so uh, Bath, the, the RUH employs 37% of its staff have BME backgrounds and uh, we have been searching ourselves because what we realised during COVID, which we should have realised before and feel very bad that we didn't, was that not understanding the impact of the weathering on people on the immune system of uh, being constantly different and visibly different and being reminded of what has happened has, uh, if you don't understand that, people die, and people did die. And uh, I was just thinking of uh, the lack of understanding you might have if you come from the privileged white background that I have, is that uh, from the hospital, you can see Beckford's Tower from virtually everywhere in the hospital. And uh, if you don't understand the impact of that, 
on people, then you're, you're really not going to be understanding at all what you have to do then to make it different. Um, and on the values bit, I think if you don't value base this development, you will continually get it wrong. So I would say that the NHS has not had these values at its heart in the past and has continually got it wrong. It now knows that, but it will be the same on every other part of the development we've been talking to. So you have to base it on your values. Wow. Um, I'm slightly feeling that's a fantastic note, <laughs> message on to which to finish. It's a very challenging one, um, but very powerful. And, and uh, you know, and, and what could be a stronger endorsement, not just with COVID and climate change, but also with Black Lives Matter, of the opportunity we're in to, um, to, to do something other than fall back on our familiar entrenched positions as concerned citizens of Bath and wanting to protect you know, what we've got around us, which is good, but shouldn't get in the way of, of all kinds of new things happening too. Um, anybody want to say a final thing? Mark, final thing, last Sorry. thing for me is thank you. Sorry, it's me again. Just building on what Alison was talking about, values and um, Black Lives Matter and so on. I think one of the big concerns that this report has brought out, and it's in the annex where we have done some data analysis on it, is the position of young people in Bath. It's a national problem, but actually young people have suffered the most when it comes to the job market, the job impacts, they're suffering problems in terms of mental health, housing, the lot. And I'm gonna leave you with this statistic or this, this very simple fact, that Bath might be well do, doing well on average when it comes to social mobility for young people and educational attainment on average, but it is one of the most unequal places in the country for young people. In other words, the difference within Bath between a person growing up in the deprived areas versus the grow people growing up in areas like mine, I'm at the top of Bathwick Hill here, is huge. And it's the, one of the biggest in the country. And we have a real problem of class inequality within our young people, as well as this problem of racial and gender, and gender inequality as well, to some extent. I'd want to pitch that in, James, because I think for me coming out of it, it's been one of the most important things that I've taken from this, this whole report, is that we've got to get, get, get going with young people and give them, after all, we're talking 2030, 20, I'm going to be dead by then. You know, I mean, it seems to me what really matters is my kid and the kids around me. And I think there's nothing worse than having so many young generations of people, right, look into the future and say, fuck, there's nothing there out there for me. So I kind of like feel that to me is a major issue here. Okay, well, we're now over time um, on that. Well, I, I was on that with that challenge ringing in our ears. Um, uh, I think there is a lot of opportunity. Um, uh, there are various initiatives. Um, I hope that we can um, uh, sustain those in ways that wasn't so easy when everybody was doing all right or thought they were um, and make the most of this crisis. And so thank you. Um, thank you for the, all the questions. And um, 
if you found this stimulating, perhaps with more questions than answers, then um, do um, uh, mention it to other people so they can listen in and hopefully we can stimulate other people to think about this and keep the energy behind the various new initiatives that are taking place. So thank you very much, uh, everybody.